welcome to chapter 134 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson, and after our review last week of all the social reforms of Disraeli's second government, now we're going to look at what interested him far more, his work in foreign affairs. You'll remember that a fellow Conservative who'd fallen out so badly with Disraeli that they'd barely been on speaking terms for years had now agreed to serve in his government. That was the Marquis of Salisbury, now back in the job he'd resigned from in disgust over the 1867 Reform Act as Secretary of State for India. Ah, India, India, the jewel in the British crown, the possession that made Britain great. Salisbury inherited the Viceroy of India appointed by the Liberals, Lord Northbrook. He was setting out to make British rule less painful to the Indians by lightening the bureaucracy and the burden of taxation. Salisbury believed in none of that. In May 1874, he wrote to Northbrook about relations between British rulers and Indian subjects. One thing at least is clear, that no one believes in our good intentions. We are often told to secure ourselves by their affections, not by force. Our great-grandchildren may be privileged to do it, but not we. Funny enough, by the time his great-grandson had become Marquis of Salisbury in 1972, India had already been independent for 27 years. Back in Disraeli's day, Salisbury at least had the refreshing honesty of recognising that Britain clung to its power in India, not by doing good among the Indians, but by sheer force. Nor was that easy for a small European nation with a population of 32 million when in India the British holdings alone had 190 million inhabitants. But then Salisbury, as his biographer Andrew Roberts tells us, was one of the first people to appreciate quite the extent to which militarily the British Empire was a gigantic bluff. Britain's only advantages were that it industrialised early and used some of its consequent wealth to make itself the world's primary naval power. But other countries were industrialising and had far more powerful armies. To name just the military achievements of three, Germany had more sophisticated organisational leadership, Russia had an army five times the size of Britain's, and the United States had emerged from its civil war, still the conflict that has cost more American lives than any other it has ever fought, with a massive, highly trained and well-armed military. It was Russia that worried Britain most. And again, India was one of the main causes of its concern. Russia alone could threaten the British Raj by land. We know today that Russia never planned such a move, but the great game of rivalry with Russia over India was a major British preoccupation. Russian pressure from the north wasn't, however, the only Russian threat to India that Britain feared because that empire was again on the move in Southeast Europe, as it had been in the run-up to the Crimean War 20 years earlier. Russia wanted warm sea ports, ones that didn't become icebound in the winter. It had captured itself a Black Sea coast from Turkey in earlier wars, but that sea was nearly landlocked, with the only outlet being the Dardanelles, a narrow waterway through Turkish territory. If Russia could extend its holdings down to the then-Turkish capital of Constantinople, present-day Istanbul, it would have control over that waterway and access to the Mediterranean, which in turn provided an outlet to the Atlantic. 
That looked increasingly possible since Turkey, or the Ottoman Empire it controlled, was the sick man of Europe. Three empires, the Austro-Hungarian, the German and the Russian, were looking forward to grabbing what they could of its land once it fell, which was bound to happen soon enough. Ironically, the German, Austro-Hungarian and Russian empires in fact fell at the same time as the Turkish, at the end of the First World War. Why did all these issues, the ingredients of the so-called Eastern Question, matter to Britain? Once more, we're talking India. Turkish territory in the Middle East and Egypt lay across Britain's best route to India. Last time around, when France, joined by Britain and Piedmont, the core of what soon became Italy, fought Russia in the Crimean War, they did so as allies of Turkey. In 1875, however, Turkey made that kind of thing far more difficult. Faced with revolts among its mainly Christian Balkan territories, Turkey sent in troops whose behaviour shocked Europe. In what came to be known as the Bulgarian atrocities, most estimates suggest that about 12,000 were killed. That was shocking for the times, though it's low compared to the standards set by 20th century genocides, but then that's what progress can do for you. Gladstone, who had given up the leadership of the Liberal Party and gone into semi-retirement, re-emerged roaring. He composed his pamphlet, The Bulgarian Horrors and the Question of the East, in just three days while sick in bed, in September 1876. It sold 40,000 copies in a week, 200,000 by the end of the month. It's hard to say whether that was Gladstone whipping up popular emotion, or popular emotion driving Gladstone to write a book that then sold phenomenally well. Each probably amplified the other. Unfortunately, when it came to Disraeli, the pamphlet produced the opposite effect. He remarked that it was vindictive and ill-written, that of course. Indeed, in that respect, of all the Bulgarian horrors, perhaps the greatest. That illustrates how cleverness and stupidity can sometimes coexist. The Israeli's words are clever, but devaluing the violence in Bulgaria could only get people's backs up. He even continued writing the word atrocities in quotation marks, as though, in spite of all the evidence, he still believed that they weren't real. To understand Israeli's attitude, we may only have to look at how he saw the primary role of his government. He declared that our duty at this critical moment is to maintain the empire of England, with his usual conflation of England and Britain. Russia's expansion, it seems, was a bigger worry for him than the behaviour of the Turks towards their Christian subjects. Though no longer leader of the Liberal Party, Gladstone represented one of the poles of views across the country on the Eastern Question, with his commitment to the rights of Christians in the Ottoman Empire against their rulers. Disraeli represented the other, with his readiness even to back Turkey again to block Russia. The government too was divided. Several ministers favoured coercing Turkey into accepting reforms. Disraeli was against, as was his foreign secretary, Darby. Disraeli was, however, willing to confront the Russians, whereas Derby was so opposed to fighting a new war against them that despite being long-standing allies and friends, a widening gap began to open up between the Prime Minister and his Foreign Secretary. Salisbury, while concerned about Russia's expansionism, was also increasingly opposed to providing any kind of support to Turkey. 
His views of Turkey were only reinforced when the cabinet sent him to Constantinople for a conference called by all the powers, Russia, Germany, France, Austria-Hungary and Italy, as well as Britain, in a last-ditch attempt to preserve peace. On his way, he held discussions with French, German, Austrian and Italian politicians and found no sympathy for Turkey anywhere. At the conference, he developed a stance in favour of Turkey making reforms to protect its Christian subjects and recognising the independence of some of its Balkan possessions, as demanded by Russia, to the point where Disraeli wrote to Derby. Salisbury seems most prejudiced and not to be aware that his principal object in being sent to Constantinople is to keep the Russians out of Turkey, not to create an ideal existence for Turkish Christians. Salisbury found his position in Constantinople constantly undermined by Derby from back home, as well as by the British ambassador on the spot, Sir Henry Elliot, a man who had, in Salisbury's view, gone native and become entirely wedded to the Turkish cause. There was never much chance of the conference succeeding. There was no unity among the non-Turkish powers. Britain, for instance, had a hidden objective of breaking up the Three Empire League of Germany, Austria-Hungary and Russia, which was hardly a good starting point for forming a united front with all three to pressurise Turkey. As for the Ottomans, they were in no mood to make concessions and change behaviour towards people they saw as subjects, or to have foreigners dictate what they viewed as their domestic policies. When negotiations broke down, war proved inevitable. Russia invaded Turkish territory in the Balkans and at the same time in the Caucasus to the east of the Black Sea. The Turks fought hard, holding the Russians up for six months at Plevna in Bulgaria. Eventually, however, the Russians broke through and swept on down the Balkans until they were practically in sight of the spires of Constantinople. When Salisbury returned from the conference, he may have feared he had been deliberately set up to fail. But in fact, his reception was far friendlier than that would suggest. And in an unexpected development, his position and Israelis began to converge. It was Derby who was isolated, especially when the cabinet realised that the Russians were receiving excellent intelligence about their discussions, and the culprit was Derby, or more likely his wife, who was sharing the details of their debates with the Russian ambassador Shuvalov. This breach of confidentiality was infuriating for all the ministers, but must also have been embarrassing for Salisbury, since Lady Derby was his stepmother. In the wider population in southern England, including London, though less in the northern Scotland, there was growing concern and indeed increasing war fever against the Russian bear's success in Turkey. A music hall song became popular. We don't want to fight, but by jingo if we do. We've got the ships, we've got the men, we've got the money too. We've fought the bear before, and while we're Britons, true, the Russians shall not have Constantinople. That's not just pro-war, but also anti-Gladstone. Many people who'd once been upset about the plight of the Bulgarian Christians now began to feel that by embracing their cause so enthusiastically, Gladstone might be sacrificing British interests in the face of Russian expansion. In January 1878, the Duke of Sutherland declared that Russia's principal agents were the Russian general Ignatieff and Gladstone. You can measure the depth of that insult when I tell you that Ignatieff was responsible for drawing up the Treaty of San Stefano, 
but Turkey signed after its military reverses forced it to agree to an armistice on Russian terms. Unfortunately for the Russians, they'd overreached. The provisions of San Stefano were unacceptable to the other European great powers. In particular, they could not put up with the creation of the so-called Big Bulgaria as a new state stretching from the Black Sea to the Aegean. Influenced by, or perhaps even little more than a puppet of, Russia, that would put the Russian threat practically in Turkey's backyard. The Israelis' government had to start taking the prospect of war seriously, even though it knew that whatever the song might say, it might have ships, but it was lacking men, and with quickly mounting public debt, it was short of money too. All the same, the government drifted towards war. Two ministers felt they could take it no longer. The first to go was Lord Carnarvon, a blow to Salisbury, whose close friend and ally he'd long been. Then Derby stood down as Foreign Secretary, a resignation that suited Salisbury far better. The Israelis' choice as a successor to Derby was, despite their past differences, Salisbury himself. That reflected how close the two men had come as their thinking evolved. Salisbury remained as opposed as ever to giving Turkey any support. He was, however, equally committed to resisting Russia's expansion. That was a position more or less indistinguishable from the Israelis. Britain had twice sent ships to the Dardanelles, but called them back each time. Now they went again. Turkey was fearful that the appearance of the British fleet off Constantinople would only provoke Russia to occupy the city. They warned Britain that if the ships entered the Dardanelles, Turkish guns would open fire on them. This time, Salisbury argued, and Israeli agreed, pulling back the ships would entirely discredit Britain. This time, the bluff would have to be called. And, indeed, this time the navy sailed into the Dardanelles and threw them. Not a Turkish gun fired. On the 15th of February 1878, six British ironclad ships dropped anchor within sight of Constantinople, with Russian troops still threatening the city from the landward side. Was war with Russia back on the cards? Had the jingoists got their way? Would it be Crimea all over again? Don't miss next week's thrilling instalment to find out what happened next. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 